Oh, hello there. Welcome to Downtown the Podcast. Episode 25, coming to you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball, here with Kerry Haskell. Downtown the Podcast is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And by the wonderful brewers at Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. On this week's podcast, we'll talk with a couple of talented folks, writer and critic Colin Fleming, and singer, songwriter, actress, well, you name it. She's got it on the resume, the talented Nellie Mackay. It's all coming up here on the podcast this week. Again, our show is based in Bangor, Maine. It airs every day, 4 to 6 Eastern Time on WZON Radio, WKIT HD3. Streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com, and you can download the WZON app and Take the station, take our show anywhere you'd like to go. Well, let's begin. We're in the midst of the baseball postseason. It seems like an appropriate time to talk a little baseball as we recently celebrated the anniversary of, well, easily the most famous sports poem of all time, Casey at the Bat. Now, we talked about its origins and uh, its impact with our friend, writer, and critic, Colin Fleming. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood four to two with but one inning more to play. And so when Cooney died at first and Burroughs did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to that oak. <laughs> that is a DeWolf Hopper from about 109 years ago. 1909 recording of Casey at the Bat. Hopper made quite a career of uh, presenting that in live performances through the years, but the poem itself celebrating a birthday, 130 years old. And to talk about that and more, we're joined by our friend, writer and critic, Colin Fleming. Hello, Colin. How's it going? Very well, thank you. It looks like you're feeling better enough to take on the monument, huh? Yeah, building back up to uh, Zulu warrior status, but I'm able to do it a little bit right now. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, so is it safe to say that Casey at the Bad is the most famous sports-related poem of all time? Yes, I think it definitely is. Most famous and best. Now, if you're just hearing the version there by our Mr. Hopper. He's really going quite over the top of it, isn't he? Do you hear how he rolls those R's? It reminds me of that opening scene in James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein, right, where you have Lord Byron. He's doing like that that cod, extra excessive British accent, and he's rolling those R's. And yes, that is what DeWolf Hopper would do, but a very popular poem, a poem so popular even if you have never sat down to read it, you have encountered it many, many, many times in your life, even if you did not wish to. Uh, lots of speculation of the role model for Casey. Uh, Ernest Lawrence there never really specified anybody, but everyone from a college player that he knew to uh, King Kelly and others. What's your best guess? King Kelly is definitely my best guess. He would have been like, you have to realize that baseball was basically like the only sport really going in America at this time. We're, we're talking the, the late 19th century here. And so King Kelly was like Michael Jordan, right? But there was no competing sports leagues, basically. Like you might have been into polo or hunting, but in terms of like team-based sports, it's pretty much going to be baseball. And King Kelly was huge. And the idea of him 
Fanning, as it were, which is what, of course, happens with Casey in Mudville, would have been something that was highly provocative. And Bayer, he was like 24 years old at the time, and he thought this was just a piece of doggerel he was dashing off. And yet it has lingered in our consciousness, I think, because it taps into what is most centrally important about sports. And that's in caring a lot about something and rooting for something and not getting it. You're going to lose oftentimes in sports, no matter how great you are. And I think that's the poem's great lesson. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's lasted so long. If, if Casey hits a home run, eh, I'm not sure we remember it 130 years later. There are doctored versions you'll see, right, like animated versions, film versions and stuff like that, where they have Casey do a walk-off. It's like, no, that, that, that doesn't work. And it's great because it really brings us in as the audience into the poem because it makes such a focal point of bringing in the audience, the crowd, in the actual stands of the poem. Because basically, here's the setup for people who don't know it. It's presumably the bottom of the ninth. This is the home team, and they are trailing by two, and their first two batters record quick outs. These were kind of the guys that you thought were going to get on. So they're sort of like your Mookie Betts and your Andrew Benatendis rather than your like Christian Vasquez, like down at the bottom of the order, like Jackie Bradley Jr. It's like, well, this is inevitable, this strikeout. And up come guys that you have little hope are really going to do anything. And they are right. But Flynn preceded Casey. It did also Jimmy Blake. And the former was a Lulu, and the latter was a cake. So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, where there seemed but little chance of Casey's getting to the bat. Like, well, way to support the home team, right? You're, like, practically walking out the stadium and, like, maybe looking back over your shoulder to see if something happens. And you have to realize, too, that being a Lulu was a prime insult back then. That was like being a classic bum. You were mired in an 0-for-22 slump if you were a Lulu. But what happens is these guys both come through. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much-despised, to the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and the men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second and Flynn a hugging third. Now, that's kind of clever what he does there. He's not hugging third. He's a hugging third. Because it's like when you're excited about something, you kind of revert to that childish way of talking almost, like I'm a scared rather than scared. <laughs> and it really taps into this like great sort of moment that you're going to get this pre-ESPN glorious walk-off occasion. But no. And, and I have to say, too, one of the most inspired choices uh, in the whole poem is the name of the home, hometown team, Mudville. My goodness, could you could you have a more perfect place than that? It's very Dickensian by way of Mark Twain, almost, is how I think of it. And awesome, too, is when Casey comes up, he has a sense of the theatrical. You have to realize, too, that if you were someone who was reading this poem back then, you would have cared a lot about the theater. And we're not talking like Beckett, obviously, but the theater was your sort of playground. It was your, your Facebook, your movie house. It was what you would have had resonate with you. And like when you see something like in the Conan Doyle, the Sherlock Holmes story. You know how like Sherlock Holmes, he figures out the mystery. And you know how he always like kind of keeps it private until the end? He sets up something so he can basically have this 
epiphany moment where he reveals everything in front of Watson, and Watson's <laughs> job is basically to shut his mouth and be like, all right, you ham, we've had enough of this, but you had your little theatrical flourish. So Casey comes up, and the first pitch blows past him, and he's like, nah, it's not my style. I'm not a man who likes to swing at the first pitch. I like to go behind in the count, <laughs> oh, one. It's like, you know, that's the crowd. So what they start doing is what, like, any crowd still does now, is even when the call is the correct call, they're screaming for the umpire to be strung up. And it's just so hilarious to me. Because then he's, he, now he's, like, down in the count. He's not controlling the count. He has a bit of a problem going on. And the second pitch comes. And we're at strike two. But, like, now everyone's in an uproar. And Casey basically he steps out of the batter's box. He has to calm everyone down. Like, hey, relax. I like to go yard on the third pitch. That's how we're doing this today. And then the funniest thing in the entire poem is he signaled to the pitcher, mm. like, you can go now. Who <laughs> <laughs> like, even thinks that way? Well, yeah. And, of course, it, it, it work out. It's almost a precursor of Babe Ruth calling his shot. Yeah. And I wonder, though, if one of the things I was, when I was reading the poem again, I thought, you know what? I wonder if, like, Casey was at the end, because Babe Ruth, yes, he called that shot, supposedly, against the Cubs. But remember Babe Ruth's, like, last three home runs? They come in the same game, right, when uh, he's actually on a Boston team. Like, the last three home runs Babe Ruth hit, it was all in one game. It wasn't his final game, but those were the final three. And I feel like Babe Ruth knew he was done. And when I read this poem, I wonder if, like, Casey almost knew he was done, that he wasn't so much overconfident as he knew that there was no way he was going yard. And he's kind of giving everyone a sort of moment. Maybe he's hoping to work the count <laughs> and load the bases so some seeing-eye single will bring in the necessary run. But he seems to me less like a man who's overconfident and more someone who's kind of unsure of his ability to succeed. And we sort of saw that with the NFL this weekend, right, when the fellow on the Bills, or in at halftime, he's done. He's not coming out again. He can't compete at that level. And you get that sense here with Casey. So the crowd and the fans, they're not just sad that this game hasn't worked out, but it feels like there is something larger going forward that has come to an end. And, and Thayer wraps it up so beautifully with uh, an ending that I think is the absolute best part of the poem. Right. Oh, somewhere in this favorite land, the sun is shining bright. I like that idea because, like, it's gloomy here, but elsewhere, <laughs> the rays are still upon us. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light, and somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout, but there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. And he ends it so beautifully on that preposition, and it becomes more in that sort of concluding note, just a baseball thing. It goes beyond a baseball thing. It goes to having your hope stashed and whatever that may be. And he doesn't give you anything else after that. He doesn't tarry. It's just everyone walk off the field, and that's going to be that. And you don't know, too. One of the things I like about this poem is, like, when you read a story, you kind of want, like, a definite timeline. You want to know that this started on Halloween and it went through April of the next year. You don't know when this ball game is being played. But the sort of timbre of the lines makes it seem very autumnal, yes. like the last game of the season, the elimination game. And it wasn't like how it is now when 
the Red Sox, when they clinch the division tonight, they'll bring on the champagne and the goggles and everything. Like, back then, if you watch, like, an old game, even something like the 1960 World Series, the Game 7, the Bill Mazeroski walk-off, like, everyone just kind of leaves the field when it's all over. And that's how people would have left this particular ballpark in case he just would have gone back to doing some other job, you know, landscaping or whatever it might have been. Yeah, and, and you get the impression, too, because it is Mudville and it's not it's not a well-known city, that it's, it's not a professional game, but that makes sense for 1888 when town teams were in many ways more popular than the pros were. Right. Now, there's an episode of Little House on the Prairie, which you think of as, like, obviously kind of like this Lewis and Clark type show, right? People going west. Well, they're playing baseball. Baseball was absolutely gigantic in the 1800s, and baseball had been around for like a quarter of a century at, at this point, and you would have not had the direct TV. You wouldn't have had the phone to give you the score updates. There wouldn't have really been a kind of national pastime in terms of national reach. It was a national pastime because of the local sort of market, that, that enclave that you would have been in. So if this Mudville, which might have been situated somewhere outside of Worcester, Massachusetts, this would have been the big social function, going down to the field behind somebody's farm to watch kind of these local legends who really weren't just local to you, because everything was local to you. So this was both kind of an interiority and an exteriority, all at once. That's Colin Fleming talking with us about Casey at the Bat here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, a fun conversation with singer-songwriter Nellie Mackay. First, this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, two friends got together the plan, create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And with that, Nice Brewing Company was born. That's Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. They're based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains. And it's there that Dustin and Tim combine the love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, Stouts, Porters, IPAs, or any of their seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and in the state of Maine, look for Nice Brewing Company beer in cans. Nice Brewing Company. Work hard, play hard, be nice. In a sentimental stars come through my room while your loving attitude our next guest on downtown has uh, appeared on broadway in the three penny opera in films uh, like ps i love you and plays her music all around the world including at the strand in rockland coming up on october 26th that's a cut from her brand new album that she's described as a film noir album. It's called Sister Orchid. 
Here's our conversation with the talented Nellie Mackay. What was your inspiration for singing some of these great songs from the 30s, 40s, and 50s? Um, oh, uh, well, I, I, I do love the idea of a, a saloon song, and, uh, and um, you know, we've been wanting to do a more intimate uh, solo album for a while, and also a ballad album. Um, you know, it's, it's good to be able to, um, uh, detach a little, um, from the, from the hustle and bustle. Well, absolutely. I, well, I want to talk about uh, some of your the highlights of your very interesting career, but uh, a sad note last week uh, with the passing of uh, producer-engineer Jeff Emmerich. He worked with you on a couple of your albums. So what was he like to work with? Oh, Jeff was just an angel, and um, it's really and, uh, uh, it, 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 the, the, the loss is uh, incalculable. It's just... Um, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's such a shock and, um, uh, devastating. You've worked with so many talented people through the years. I caught a, a wonderful piece from E-Town recently, uh, where you did a great duet in the Beatles across the universe with friend of our show, Colin Hay. Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember doing that. Yeah. Oh, well, best of him. Hope he's well. Uh, looking back through your career, there's so many wonderful albums. One of my favorites, uh, because I can't imagine that no one's ever done it before, but nobody seemed to have done a lot of covers of Doris Day until you recorded Normal as Blueberry Pie. What was the inspiration behind that? You know, it was my, my A&R, um, uh, Mitchell Cohen. It was his idea, and um, I, I think it, it did um, kind of... Uh, as a course for many people, she had such a long and varied career, and uh, she was also and still is very good to the animals. You know, she has the Doris Day Animal League and Animal Foundation, and um, so she's still ahead of her time, even in such kind of mainstream ideas as adopt, don't shop. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, I just want to set it for that. Uh, you did an album of originals, Home Sweet Mobile Home, and then came back with uh, another one of my favorites, uh, your tribute to some great 1960s tunes, My Weekly Reader. I love the title, and I love so many songs. You do a great cover of uh, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, Itchy Coo Park. But I think my favorite, and uh, who found, did you find Moby Grapes, Murder in My Heart for the Judge? Man, that's a great song. Well, thanks so much. I have to give credit to my mother, who. Um, was in growing up near San Francisco at the time of what would be great, and they used to play on uh, a place and oh, what it was a boat on the water, uh, at, um, the Ark. I think it was the Ark in San Francisco, and but it was in Sausalito Bay. That was it, and um, and uh, so I, I believe uh, she spent some time um, uh, with them. So I I. Um, uh, I have to give credit to her because she knew so many things I I didn't know. I um, so I'm yeah, and I'm, I'm glad I, I love Mrs. Brown. I, that might have been my only con- contribution to the album's lineup. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I uh, uh, I'm glad you liked it. That was such a joy to record with Jeff, and and it was such it was just I think that is. 
pretty near my idea of heaven would be to go back to that serious situation with Jeff. It was it felt like we were on an ark in the middle of a, 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 a an often vast and terrifying ocean, um, making something together. It was magical. Well, I, I love Mrs. Brown. We've had Peter Noon on our show, but uh, something about that song works so well with the ukulele. I, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, uh, Jeff once said that um, it was on a, a, a different album uh, that we had made, but that the uke sounded like, I believe he called it a paragon harp. And that's probably the nicest I've ever heard the uke describe because. Uh, Unless you're Jake, I can never say his last name properly, but that ukulele whiz, you know, oh, or yeah. George Harris, <laughs> um, that, uh, um, you know, it, it, it can be a little repetitive, that uke. Uh, how did you and David Byrne come to work together? I believe he approached me about his album, and, and we had invited him to shows, and he's always been so kind and generous, and... Um, the last show we came to was the one about Billy Tipton, and I wore a prosthetic. And um, I, when I would hug everyone at the end of the show, I would kind of bump them with the prosthetic. And I think that um, I, I did that with David, and we haven't heard from him since. So <laughs> I think it, that might have had something to do with it. But I hope I'll see him soon. I, I love him and his work. We're talking with Nellie Mackay here on Downtown. She'll be at the Strand in Rockland on Friday night, October 26th. You mentioned the Billy Tipton show. Uh, You've done a cabaret show, I Want to Live, on the life of Barbara Graham, a convicted murderer. Is is it fun to play those very interesting and complex characters and bring their their stories to life? Oh, for sure. For sure. And uh, and I love playing it with music, and I love working with the band, um, in in that I I I think they do it's a Brechtian style of performance the band because they um, they aren't acting so much as imitating and um, and uh, it, it's it's a real joy it's a shame that touring is so difficult and even live performance because the band is spread out between two coasts um, even if we were to stay in one place it's tricky. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, um, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, it, it's really nice to be able to tell a story and, and to be someone else. I mean, we all have to live with ourselves. It's nice to say make-believe. Hey, you mentioned Brechtian performances, and you had a chance to uh, do that with your first Broadway show, Three Penny Opera, with, uh, gosh, an incredible cast of people like Cindy Lauper, uh, Jim Dale, uh, the great Alan Cumming. Is it at all intimidating to take on the works of Brecht? Oh, um, I, I, I suppose so, but, uh, but I, I, I like his uh, sense of humor, and um, uh you know, um, this idea of bread before morals, which is um, something we're still looking at today, is uh, you know everybody has to have a decent life, um, you know, decent, um, and and not be overworked and overstressed. And um, I, I I believe that was a commercial I just heard on your radio station about how. Three fourths of people in this country can't afford a thousand dollars if there was an emergency. Mm. Until that is taken care of, you can't 
preach morals to people. And, and I, a lot of good people I know, I think they still have that backwards. You're always, I, and, and I guess I've been there too. You, you, you can't, everybody has to be comfortable first before they can be receptive to new ideas or consideration of other people. Because when you're under that much stress yourself, one tends to scapegoat. I, I know I do, um, just in terms of, uh, you know, the little things. Uh, you, you go looking for someone to blame when you're in trouble. Well, along those same lines, I, I know you're a big fan of Chris Hedges' great book, Death of the Liberal Class. Uh, we're in a, a situation in our country right now where we're at complete uh, polarization, where some of our traditional institutions have failed us here. And uh, Hedges talks about radical militancy is the answer. Is that the only way out? Have we been too passive in allowing our country to become what it's turned into? Well, I, I, I think um, Hedges is, uh, he's, he's so interesting because he's also, um, he's quite religious, uh, as is Dr. Cornell West. And I, I think that informs their politics because they, they, they answer to a higher power than uh, just a party, you know, or, or just a political system. So while I'm not terribly religious, I think it, it helps them stay true to their um, their convictions on behalf of other people, such as, we shouldn't bomb people. We shouldn't blow people apart. And no matter how pragmatic that may seem, and a lot of what passes for pragmatism is actually denial, uh, that they're never going to support that, no matter what form it may take. And, and that takes a great deal of strength. Um, but I, what I actually find with Hedges is, I think part of what he writes about in his new book, America, The Farewell Tour, um, he, he talks about, how they want us to be angry, the system. And that, that, that while, of course, anger is justified at that system, that we have to make sure we don't just respond with light to what the, the status quo puts out and wishes to foment in us. Um, so I, I think when he talks about radical militancy, it can be also of the spirit and the, and the soul that, um, that you're not going to capitulate that a, a compromise is not a compromise when you're making all the concessions. But he, he's, he's quite um, strong against violence, much like John Lennon, you know, said that, uh, that the, the, you know, forces of violent, violence want you to be violent. The only thing, because then they know exactly how to handle you if you get violent, but the only thing they don't know how to understand is nonviolent and humor. And there's a lot of truth in that. No question about it. Nellie Micaiah, uh, we're a big fan of your work. Love, Sister Orchid, and look forward to the show Friday, October 26th at the Strand in Rockland. Thank you so much for talking with us this afternoon. Thank you so much. Just a delight. Thank you. That's Nellie Mackay here on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks to Nellie, and of course, thanks to Colin Fleming for joining us. And thanks to you. Spread the word, tell your friends, get them to subscribe as well to Downtown, the podcast, iTunes, Google Play, on our website as well at downtownwithrichkimble.com. Gary Haskell, well, this is that very same Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown Podcast.